Good morning. Today's reading is taken from page 1228, if you have your church Bibles. Um, that's from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 to 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that we should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. There are some handouts with uh, headings on uh, and also the, uh, the Bible passage in both English and traditional Chinese. If you'd like one of those, just put a hand up and uh, one of our welcome team will come round and give that to you. If you wish to make notes, then do that. There's a few hands. I'll just let, uh, if you keep your hand up till you've got one, uh, that would be great. I'll do keep the scriptures open to 1 John chapter 5 as we come to the end uh, of this series in John's first letter. Uh, Let me pray for the Lord's help for us as we do so. Dear Father, we praise and thank you because in Jesus, your son, you give us by your grace eternal life. You bring us as we trust in him into your family. And as we come to this last uh, passage in this letter uh, this morning, we pray for your help to hear it, to understand it, to believe it, to apply it to our lives. Father, please would you give us that confidence which belongs to your children. Take from us any doubt or arrogance and bring us, we pray, to fix our eyes on Jesus and so to know the certainty and security of your acceptance of us in him. And from that freedom, Lord, send us out uh, to love others, to speak plainly the truth of the gospel, to be your ambassadors in this dying world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's the difference between confidence and arrogance? We know there is one, don't we? And we know which one we'd like to be. No one wants to be thought of as arrogant But we don't mind, in fact, we quite like it, if people think we're quietly confident. The one is an insult, the other is a compliment. But how do we tell the difference? We all know, uh, as we uh, live our lives, that sometimes uh, one person who seems to others uh, to be full of confidence to another seems arrogant and vice versa as well. It's hard to work out the difference I remember vividly uh, arriving at one of my final exams when I was at university. I arrived at the same time 
as the only other person who was doing exactly uh, the uh, same degree as me, a a combined degree of maths and computing, uh, though there were a number of us doing this particular uh, paper, a three-hour exam. And as we moved towards the exam hall, uh, this chap said he wasn't coming in. I was concerned. I I asked him why. He said, oh, I, I haven't done any revision at all. So I'm going to sit outside the exam for an hour or so and then come into the exam an hour late. I felt really rather concerned for him, but I needn't have done. Uh, He came in an hour late. Uh, He completed the paper in about an hour and then left an hour early before the exam time finished. Uh, Needless to say, I was writing feverishly uh, all the way through the three hours and failed the paper. He got a first. He was supremely confident, and his confidence was well-placed. Unlike me, he really was a true mathematician. Or or was it arrogance that just happened on that day in that paper to pay off? It's not always easy to tell. We parted company. I've no idea what happened to him in his later life. But every now and again, I've wondered whether his approach uh, of uh, supreme confidence or foolish arrogance I wonder how that's worked out for him as he's gone on in his life. Well, in spiritual things and with an open Bible, the difference between arrogance and confidence is easier to define and describe. Although, friends, as we know, it's not always so easy to discern whether in our hearts uh, or as we're trying to encourage others around us. Biblically, the answer is straightforward. The arrogant are those who trust in themselves to navigate their way to God. But the confident are those who trust in Jesus Christ alone to bring them to the Father. Self-confidence in approaching God is actually arrogance, a disastrous exercise in human pride and self-reliance that will result in eternal failure. Whereas when we come to Christ and we embrace him by faith and trust him entirely for our standing before God, well, then that is a faith-filled exercise in humility. Now, some of you may be thinking in this introduction, uh, it doesn't really matter to me the difference between arrogance and confidence because I'm pretty sure I'm not arrogant and I know I'm not at all confident. Actually, the same sort of question arises. Who do you trust? That's the key question. Don't worry about uh, discerning the outcome or how you see yourself or others see you. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? See, the person who trusts in himself or herself may be filled with pride if they think they're really rather a special sort of human being, or they could equally be filled with despair if they know the reality and perhaps they have a truer understanding of the reality of their own heart and that there is nothing here to give us confidence before God. When we're looking at ourselves, whether it's pride or despair, either way, that will not save us. No, as we look to Jesus Christ, well then we will be marked by deep confidence and genuine humility because that is what God's word produces in us. As we follow Christ, as we keep following Christ, as we uh, meet with God's people under his word, as we encourage one another and go on a lifetime's pilgrimage, this is something in which we can and must grow. 
a deep confidence in who we are before God uh, that breeds not arrogance, but rather the kind of uh, turning away from self that enables us to love others and to be concerned for others' needs, both material and spiritual, rather than endlessly being anxious over the state of our own soul. You remember that uh, account in the Gospels where uh, Jesus is walking on the water uh, and he calls Peter to step out of the boat uh, and walk to him on the water as well. And at first, it's fine because Peter looks at the Lord Jesus. But then he looks away. And as he looks away, he begins to doubt and be filled with fear and he begins to sink beneath the waters. Because the Lord Jesus is endlessly, powerfully merciful, he reaches out his hand And brings him back. Well it's that keeping our eyes on the Lord Jesus. That Peter failed to do in that moment. That God's word encourages us to do. As we go through a lifetime of knowing him. And it's as we look at him. And not at the waves. Not within at the endless failures. That are the story of our own lives. It's as we look to him. That we will grow in this confidence. That brings us certainty in who we are in Christ, and freedom, the freedom of which we've been singing in some of our songs already, freedom to love him and to love others and to go on bringing him glory. And in this final section of John's first letter, the apostle closes by encouraging just this sort of deep confidence in Christ. Six times in these few verses, I wonder if you noticed as Andrew was reading the passage, John says, you know, or we know. Sometimes people say, don't they, that we must choose uh, between faith and certainty, or faith and knowledge. Well, John says not at all. Rather, it's as we trust in Jesus uh, that we can come to know with absolute certainty these things that are now true of who we are and the privileges we have and the future that is ours in Jesus. We know, we know, you know these things, John says to us today. So what does Christ-centered confidence look like? What do we know? Three answers from these final verses in John's letter. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we know that we have life from God. We know that we can pray to God and be heard And third, and most simply and wonderfully of all, when we trust in Jesus Christ, we simply know God. So let's go through those uh, with John this morning. First, verse 13, we know when we trust in Jesus Christ that we have life from God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life When you read at the end of John's gospel that he wrote that document so that as we hear of who Jesus is, we might come to believe in him and so have life. We realize that the gospel is there to bring us to faith in Jesus. But the latter, he says here, and it's a very similar sentence if you compare the two, uh, is to those who already believe that we may have this confidence, this reassurance, this knowledge that now comes to grow from and to adorn our faith in Jesus Christ. I write these things to you who believe so that you may know. That's the logic of these final verses and indeed that of the whole of John's letter. Now, if you do not yet believe, well, 
there will be enough encouragement in this sermon to hear the outline of the gospel. But come alongside us for a season. Come to one of the evangelistic courses we hope to run uh, again in the near future. Uh, Ask questions of John or I uh, or of a trusted Christian friend so that you can discover for yourself the wonder of who Jesus is and trust him and live. But for you who believe, the Lord's purpose for you is that you will know that you have life and that no one will unsettle that confidence we have in him. Now John has already told us at several points why he wrote uh, this letter and they all uh, combine to give different aspects of the same uh, reason. Back in chapter 2 verse 26, uh, 226 he said this, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. The true gospel says that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he came and he died on the cross for our sins and turned aside God's anger and judgment from us so that when we trust in Jesus, we have eternal life. That is, we come to know God. We come to be accepted by him, adopted by him as daughters and sons of the king. The background to the whole letter is that a group of apparently persuasive people who started believing that, have now left the church and abandoned this core teaching, all the while claiming to have gone deeper and higher in spiritual things. They'd set themselves up against the word of God and the apostle John in particular. But they still talked about Jesus and God and life. But they had remade the gospel after their own image and to suit their hearers' tastes. And John is saying, don't listen to them. Listen to who the real Jesus is and put your trust in him. The Jesus that we apostles saw with our eyes and heard with our ears and touched with our hands, this is the one, to go very back to the beginning of the letter, that we proclaim to you. And their witness is now encapsulated in what we call the New Testament so that we can believe, so that we can know who we are in Jesus today. And if you've been with us through the series, uh, you'll know just how dangerous this threat of substituting a man-made, culture-shaped, people-pleasing message was when it came up against the apostolic gospel in John's day. If, as one of you did, and I I heartily don't recommend it, uh, you watched all nine hours of a crucial debate by the governing body of the church in Wales last week, Uh, you will see, if you didn't know already, just how real the threat remains. To say, let us listen to God in the voice of culture and not in the words of the apostles. And it's not just in the Western world. Uh, Read the stories again in this week's news of the recently deceased so-called prophet T.B. Joshua and weep for those that he deceived spiritually and fleeced materially, all the while cloaking his greed and error in the name of Jesus. This is not an ancient problem that we don't wrestle with. This is with us today. Because the temptation of our hearts and the voice of our culture will always try and shift our eyes off the Jesus of the apostolic reality. And it's against that background of clamoring voices with contradictory claims about spiritual things that John says the person who just keeps their eyes on this Jesus may know, not just have a vague sense that it'll work out all right in the end, but may know that they have eternal life 
in him. As a young Christian, I remember the question being put to me something like this. If you died today, would you be confident, absolutely sure, that you would wake up in heaven? That it would be eternal life that awaits you, not something else, or or you just don't know? Well, such confidence, John says, and I remember how the question challenged me at the time. Uh, Such confidence, he says, can and should mark the one who trusts in Jesus Christ. And it will often be heard uh, when we express our faith confidently as arrogance in the ears of those who hear us. I mean, you need to watch our hearts that it is not arrogance. Well, how will it not be arrogance but confidence? Precisely because it does not depend on me or you at all. I will continue uh, as the Lord gives me breath uh, to gather with God's people to lead you and join you in confessing our sins. I do it every day and so should you. There will never be anything in me that is commendable to God such that he might look at me and say, ah, there is a favored one. Maybe I should have him in my kingdom. Never, ever is that a ground for our confidence before God. No, it is only as we look to Jesus and claim his righteousness, his death in my place, his resurrection life as my inheritance, only as we look to him will we not sink beneath the waves. But as we look to him, well, then we know that God will no more reject us than he will reject Jesus. God will no more leave us in the grave than he left his son in the tomb. And God will look at us who trust in Jesus as with the same fatherly love that he has for his own and only begotten son, Jesus Christ. That is the level of confidence we have in him. As my predecessor taught a generation of people in this church, what is true of the king is true of his people. That is why what we have is confidence, not arrogance. Or perhaps you've come to church today not sure what you believe, or with only a vague sense that maybe God is there. Well, the good news that John wants to share with you, uh, he who saw and heard and touched, is this. God has not left you in the dark to guess. He has come. He's come in the person of his son, Jesus, and he's come to bring you life as his gift to those who will trust in him. And when we do believe, well, we can know that that is an absolute certainty, that we have life. Life now as we come to know God, as well as life beyond death in the resurrection age to come. Trust in him and live. And if you do trust in him, you will certainly live. That's the, breath, that's the hope that we have. It is sure and it is certain. Again, let me plead with you. If you hear this and think, I just don't get that. Or it just seems arrogant. Or, or how could it possibly be my story? I would have this sure and certain hope. Talk to a trusted Christian friend. Read the scriptures uh, yourself. Come and walk with us and learn these things. And never settle for arrogance. Never trust in yourself. But always look to the Lord Jesus. Second, verses 14 to 17, we know that we can pray to God and be heard. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, the word confidence here may be literally translated freedom of speech. 
It means boldness and openness and frankness. And this, John says, is what Christian prayer looks like. This is what happens when a son or daughter comes and pleads with their heavenly father. If you talk to my parents, one of the stories they'll tell you about me uh, is that as soon as I was able to talk, I was impossible to silence. I was a chatterbox. I was awake. I was talking. Uh, I was not talking. That meant I was asleep. Uh, That was just the way I was from uh, a young age. Uh, I wonder if you know my children well enough to know which one of them has inherited that particular quality. Uh, You can give me your answers afterwards. Well, within the family, uh, at least... Uh, within our families, that level of confidence and freedom and insistence on being heard is good. It's wonderful. It's a sign that our our children uh, have that uh, sense of freedom and belonging uh, and uh, know how much they're loved, that when they speak, they'll be heard uh, by their mum and dad. Well, John says, within our spiritual family, This freedom of speech as we call on our Heavenly Father is absolutely the mark of confident Christian prayer. Not pretense, not waiting until the words are more measured or sound a little bit more religious, but just coming insistently into our Father's presence and bringing to him what is on our hearts. We have freedom of speech. We have confidence in approaching our Father. We yearn to speak with him. He is our dad. We love him, or rather we depend on his extraordinary love for us. And we do so with the confidence that he listens. Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he, to our Father in heaven, and and to do so uh, uh, with the confidence uh, that he loves us, the absolute assurance that God listens to his children. But as we ask like that, and some of us need to be challenged uh, to embrace that freedom, to make the most of that opportunity of coming uh, before God. As we come, there is, of course, this qualification. We may ask anything, but we must ask according to his will if our requests are to be granted. Again, human parents know this, don't we? Our children may ask us anything and ask us for anything, Uh, but not everything they ask us for is good uh, or possible. Uh, The parallel is not exact. Uh, We human parents are limited because we're mortal and we don't have access to all resources. Uh, And also, uh, we are sinful and so therefore we may be unwise or unkind in the way we answer our children. But even with those caveats, we know that it is not always loving to say yes to every single request that our children bring to us. We know that's true in the human family, how much more so with our Heavenly Father, whose wisdom is infinite and whose love is perfect. We have confidence in approaching him. We know that he hears us, but John says we must also know that he will only say yes to that which is good for us and right in his sight, and his sight encompasses the whole of our lives and the whole of eternity. We know that's true with our own children, don't we? That sometimes, especially when they're very young, we know that if they were just a few years older, they'd understand why it had to be no on this occasion. But they're too young. They don't get it. They're just upset that we haven't said yes to whatever it is. Well, on a grander and eternal scale, that's how it is with us and our Heavenly Father. That which seems to us to be a cruel denial 
or the allowance of something in our lives which we just don't understand and can't possibly see why he would have caused or allowed that or denied uh, the other. And the canvas of eternity, we will see it then uh, as part of his loving purposes for his children. As I say, we don't grasp that, do we, uh, here and now. We know that's true as parents. We uh, find our children uh, don't always agree with us immediately when we say no to something. Of course they don't. Sometimes there are tears and they resist and they're aggrieved. We may hear a door slamming distantly in the house shortly afterwards. That's just the same for us and our Heavenly Father when he differs with us over what is good and right when we pray to him. So let's not be too surprised, for he won't be. If Sometimes that means our prayer times are marked by frustration and tears. No matter, we still come before him with freedom of speech, confident before him of his love and good purposes for us, even if we don't see them, especially when we don't understand them. It's not that he doesn't hear us. It's just that his purposes uh, are opaque to us in our finite lives. No, God hears us uh, in the sense of doing what we ask when we ask in accordance with his will. And that's a good thing because he knows everything and he knows what truly will love us. And when we don't understand why, we pray like Jesus did in Gethsemane with tears, Father, not my will, but yours be done. That is true of the Son of God. How much more for the sons and daughters of God he brings into the family. And he gives a specific example of prayer. Remember the context, a congregation bruised and left reeling by those who've departed and now preach a different message. And those who remain, who still trust in the real Jesus, the one preached by the apostles, find like we do that we struggle against sin and sometimes fail. And in their uh, house, then, should we pray in that context? Well, starting with the Christian, the brother or sister in Christ, whom we see sinning, verse 16, if anyone sees a brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. All wrongdoing is sin. There is sin that does not lead to death. When we trust in Jesus and his death for our sins, uh, then our individual sins the ones we keep confessing every week, the ones we keep confessing every day, they do not lead to our condemnation. They do not lead to our rejection by the Father. So what should we do when we do sin? We should confess our sins to God and he will forgive us. John taught us that back in chapter 1. But what should we do when we see a brother or sister sin? It's good to encourage them to turn from it. But John says we should pray. And when we pray, we may be confident that the Lord will restore, that is, uh, renew and uh, apply afresh his forgiveness, uh, bring afresh his life to that fellow believer. By contrast, he says at the verse, end of verse 16, uh, there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. Now, I know that these phrases and these verses uh, have been a cause of anxiety to uh, many believers as they've wrestled with them uh, over the years. So what is this sin that leads to death, the forfeiting of eternal life itself? Well, it is the sin of those who no longer trust the real Jesus. It's the sin of the ones John has earlier called in this letter the Antichrists, those who've turned away from Christ and his death in their place for their sins that John says, well, now... There is no more forgiveness 
because they've turned away from the one who gave it to them. And so we do not pray with the same expectation for their restoration. It's what Jesus calls the eternal sin, or more popularly, the unforgivable sin. And if that troubles you, and you want to spend more time in these verses, uh, do come and see me and we'll do that uh, together. But in a nutshell, this is the thing to remember, the only unforgivable sin is the failure to come to Jesus for forgiveness. The only thing that will be unforgiven into eternity is the rejection of the very Savior who comes to rescue us and bring us into the family of God. Now, the sin that a Christian commits and that a non-Christian commits, they're just as sinful. That's why John says here, uh, all wrongdoing is sin. But when someone who trusts in Jesus sins, it will not lead to death. It will not lead to the forfeiting of eternal life. But the one who has rejected Jesus, well, it is just one more sin that adds to their sentence of rejection and condemnation in eternity. How much more then do we see here the urgency of coming to Jesus, remaining in him? And as we close, we will be on this joyful note because our final point, as we trust Jesus, verses 18 to 20, we know God. This is the essence of the Christian faith. What is eternal life, Jesus says, uh, John 17, verse 3. It is to know God, the only true God and Jesus Christ who he has sent. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. What's going on here? Don't we continue to sin? Haven't I just confessed that I do that? Didn't John tell us at the beginning of the letter that if we say we don't sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? Well, the original text is bolder still. Uh, we know that anyone born of God does not sin, is what John says literally in verse 18. Again, hasn't John just said that a brother, a fellow Christian, may sin and then we pray for them uh, so that it will not take away their life? Well, he said it already at the beginning of chapter 1, as I say. So what does he mean when he says that anyone born of God does not sin? Well, he answers the question in the second part of the verse. The one born of God, that is Jesus, the only uh, one and only son of God, keeps him safe so that the evil one cannot harm him. Now, how does the devil, how does the evil one seek our harm? Well, he stands there before God and he accuses us. He says, that Mike Smith, let me give you a list of the wicked thoughts he's had just in the last 24 hours. Let me just detail the things that he's done in secret that he doesn't want anyone to know about. And there are the public things and the foolish things. And that was just the last 24 hours, God. Let's go back over 52 years. The devil accuses us before God. And those sins are real and they deserve condemnation. But Jesus keeps us safe, John says. How? Because on the other side, he's there speaking to the Father in our defense. He says, Father, my death has paid for every one of those sins, even the ones not yet committed, because the fellow's not even died yet, and there'll be more sinning. But all of it's covered. All of it's covered in my blood. And so he speaks to the Father in our defense. John said back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, presenting his death as the full and sufficient payment for our sins. So that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
We know that anyone born of God does not sin. Not that we don't keep committing sins, though we seek not to and earnestly try and repent when we do. No, but in the sense that we cannot sin because all of sin's power and penalty has been paid for and taken from us. And one day we will be deliberated even from its presence as we come into eternity and see our Savior who has rescued us. When we trust in Christ, we too are children of God because he keeps us safe from the evil one so that nothing can take us out of the Father's hand or family. We are born of him. We're not under sin's dominion anymore. We are free because Christ has set us free. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. There are two ways to live. There are only two ways to live. That's the offense of the gospel. Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? We saw that back in chapter 3. We belong to the one or we belong to the other. The gospel calls us to turn from the world under the control of the evil one to Christ, from Satan to God, from trusting in ourselves to trusting in the Savior. And the confidence for doing so is given us in the only other verse in this letter, which uses this phrase, the whole world. It's back in chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the one who turns aside God's wrath, taking away our sins. And not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. That's why the children of God don't spend their times navel-gazing about how wonderful it is to be a child of God, but rather longing that those who are still in the captivity of sin and the world and the devil will come in to know this expansive love and freedom of the children of God for themselves, that those who do not yet trust Christ will come to him and be saved and will live and will know that they too are children of God whose confidence not in themselves, but in everything that Jesus is for us. That's why we say, and the end of John's final writing in the New Testament, uh, in Revelation, uh, the final word of God is come. Uh, The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Come to Jesus. Come uh, to the water of life, the inexhaustible, life-giving word that speaks freedom and life to us in Jesus. And as we come, as we go with that message, well then, yes, we gather confident that we are the children of God sent to call others to come to trust Jesus as well. And then finally, verse 20, we also know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Well, John is wrapping up some of the grand themes of Christ's person and work. God has spoken and God has saved and all in Jesus. And the Son of God has come uh, as the propitiation for our sins. And he's come with the gospel to explain it, to give us understanding, so that we may know the truth. The truth of who he is, the truth of who we are, the truth as we come to him of who we are in him. And this truth comes, this understanding is given, not because we were clever, not because we sorted out, but because the Son of God has not only saved us, but taught us what that means. He's given us understanding, 
as a gracious gift. And follow John's logic. Even more than knowing the truth, we know him who is true. That is the Father. We're in him because we are in his son, Jesus Christ. We know God. There is no father without the son. There's no way to God except through Jesus. There is no knowledge of God apart from coming uh, in humility, in faith and trembling before his word uh, that centers on Jesus Christ. For he is the true God and eternal life. John may mean the Father or the Son. It doesn't really matter. He certainly includes both. And we know him. We know the Father through the Son. Friends, could you say those things? Could you say that you know you have eternal life, that you have confidence in coming before God in in prayer, that you know God as one of his children in this language of John? If you don't, pray it, ask for it. This is yours to receive. And gain help from others that we might uh, encourage you into the full possession of these great gifts of God. And in the view of all the half-true Jesus on offer in the world, and even among the churches today, John closes with actually not a, a different thought, but with the final urging that sums up the whole letter. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't go looking for another Jesus other than the apostolic Jesus. Trust in him, Uh, and uh, as the whole New Testament, the whole scripture bears witness to him uh, who alone is God in the flesh and in whose atoning death alone and in full is the salvation of our sins and our birthright into the family of God. My friends, when we trust in Jesus, we know we have life, we know we can pray, we know God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this great letter, Lord, we thank you for its truth. At times we've struggled with it, Lord, it's, it's in places perplexing and hard to hear. Please would you give us the understanding you promise. And Lord, we pray not just for understanding of the head, but the knowledge of you in the heart. That we would know we have life. That we would know how much you love us as your children. That we would be free in coming to you in our prayers. Lord, in all these things, please would you help us to enter into the full inheritance of the children of God. And to that end, we pray this one thing, that we might be kept from idols and keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.